From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In cities and on farms, Westerners use more Colorado River water than the river can provide. A large percentage of our winter vegetables are grown from water that comes out of the Colorado River. That's at risk. Today, U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper, who's pressing his colleagues downstream to devise a solution before one's forced onto them. Western water law has never incentivized us to be more efficient. You know, if you don't use your water allotment, you lose it. Then, the uncertain future of Denver's oldest commercial block, Larimer Square. I think one of the sad things here is there's a number of homegrown businesses that have left the square who did not intend to do so. This is not what they wanted to do. And the block's new owners aren't saying much about their intentions. Thank you to our dedicated members and to everyone who donated during the recent fund drive. Because of you, CPR continues to grow, delivering news and music programs we can all rely on. It's incredibly powerful that tens of thousands of listeners across the state voluntarily make room in their budgets to support Colorado Public Radio. Thank you for your generosity, and thank you for being a part of the CPR membership community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The states and tribes along the Colorado River have been overusing it. This, on top of a mega drought, means we in the Southwest are dangerously close to not being able to get water where it needs to go to some housing developments, farms, businesses. We are also unsettlingly close to a point where massive hydroelectric dams couldn't produce power anymore. Senator John Hickenlooper, Democrat from Colorado, has been leading meetings with other Western senators to devise solutions to this Colorado River crisis. And Senator, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be back. Let's help people understand the stakes In a previous career, you owned a brewery in Denver. (laughs) How much much did you think about water then? And how would the picture be different today if you were still in the beer business? Well, the beer business, your your connection to water is very direct. And people brag about the quality of their beer reflecting the quality of the water they use. So it's precious. But even more important is the, the volumes of water that you use, not just in beer, but in almost all of our food processing systems, our food growing, all this takes water, not just the water that goes into the plant, but all the water all the way along the supply chain. And a large percentage of our winter vegetables are grown from water that comes out of the Colorado River. That's at risk. Do you think that there's something grown in the West that shouldn't be? No, I wouldn't say that. I think that... uh, the winter vegetables that people rely on, lettuce, string beans, broccoli, go down the list. We can get them from other places, Mexico, Latin America, but it's always better to have your sources of food, I think, within your own country for a long-term sustainable, uh, it's almost a point of national security to have that sustainable source of food. So we need to look at what foods are the highest and best use of that water. We need to look at, you know, how can, everyone involved be responsible in trying to use less water. And by that, I mean the municipal water consumption along the front range, whether it's Colorado Springs or Denver or Fort Collins, as well as Los Angeles, 
Las Vegas, Phoenix, I mean, all the major metropolitan areas along the whole Colorado River are all using the same catchment area of water. And we're all going to have to be a lot wiser about it. There's just not as much water as science had always predicted. While Las Vegas is often invoked, I want to say that farms and ranches use more than 70% of the water, uh, indeed, growing a lot of the food we eat. I think that number shocks a lot of people. Crops are also grown to feed cattle for people to eat or that produce dairy. Uh, and there are feed crops as well that are sold abroad. Um, so you, you talked about sustainability, the importance of growing close to home, but you also talked about highest and best use crops. So you seem to be hinting that there should be a reassessment there. Well, what I'm, what I'm suggesting, and this is really what our kind of Western bipartisan senators caucus is exploring, is what are the possible solutions? And let's put everything on the table. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we don't export any of the alfalfa that we grow. I'm not suggesting that we stop growing certain vegetables because there might be a little more water intensive. But let's examine exactly what the situation is and how well are our cities doing in terms of conserving water themselves. I think the problem is bigger than anyone thought. I mean, to cut two to four million acre feet is a big situation. And this whole thing is based on an agreement that's 100 years old and was based on faulty science. We should be looking at every possible option. You know, what's the per capita consumption of water in Denver or Las Vegas? Las Vegas is a lot lower than Denver. Is, is there ways that Denver or Phoenix or Los Angeles could be using less water and in that frugality, make sure there's more water for growing food? I, th- I think we should be looking at everything. You talk about the looming cuts. We'll get back to that in a moment with the potential for federal intervention. But indeed, one of the problems is on paper. Every state at this point is entitled to more water than the river can support. And those numbers indeed come from this agreement signed in 1922. Uh, By now, everyone knows those numbers are a fantasy. And the reality is at least a third less than what the states have legal rights to. So, Senator, can we just rip up the 1922 agreement and start over with real numbers? Well, we can certainly take those real numbers. I don't think anyone's suggesting we rip up that agreement because there's a huge, I mean, libraries of case law that has descended from and based on that agreement. So you can't suddenly say, well, all those commitments are no longer valid. I mean, as flawed as the compact may be, we need consent to change it. We need to get everybody around the table and agree to it or else we're going to end up in court. It'll probably go to the Supreme Court pretty quickly, but who knows how long that's going to take and who knows what happens in the meantime, what steps the Bureau of Reclamation might take. So uh, as I've told the other senators, you know, we're not trying to take away any of the rights uh, and responsibilities of the governors or the states, the water authorities in each state. But I think that the centers can be a big aid in helping facilitate that kind of collaborative resolution and compromise that can get us out of this thing. You refer to the compact, the Colorado River Compact. So people have been unwilling to give an inch. Uh, John Hickenlooper, what is an inch you are willing to give in this? I have I can give you a whole long list. I think rotational fallowing is a possibility by which we can continue to grow the crops, but every fourth year, every fifth year, every sixth year, 
you know, you let certain pieces of land lie fallow Mm -hmm. and that saves, you don't use as much water in something like that. And yet it spreads the benefit and the cost to everybody. I mean, Western water law has never incentivized us to be more efficient. You know, if you don't use your water allotment, you lose it. So why would anyone pay to cover their irrigation ditches? Look at a lot of the irrigation ditches across Arizona are open, going through some of the hottest and driest desert in the entire country. So in a funny way, Colorado's given more than an inch. I mean, we've given twice what the lower basin states have agreed to. And I think that in many ways, by not using our full allotment all these years, I think most of the upper basin states feel like the lower basin states are the ones that are going to have to really step up and figure out what the appropriate compromise is between them and in the process, all seven of us. Well, if you're going to tell farmers, let some of your fields lie fallow for a bit in this rotational uh, scenario that you describe, you know, they need to make money. They need to pay for their mortgages. uh, And who pays the farmers has been a big question. Do you have an answer to that? No, I think and I think that's a, a, a big issue. You know, the seven states have agreed to voluntary cuts in the past and not everyone's going to be able to get you know, fully compensated. And obviously, there are a number of farmers and ranchers who on the priority list are lower down than, you know, users that have been using their water for a longer period of time. And I think that's the real challenge here is we need to come together as all seven states. And, and I mean the upper basin, too. And I'm, everybody's got to have skin in the game. Everybody's got to sit down and say, here's what we're willing to do. We have $4 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, the, the annual budget of the Bureau of Reclamation is only $2 billion. So that's serious money in this. And when we did the bipartisan infrastructure bill, there was $8 billion committed to water infrastructure. Now, that's not all for the Colorado River. But again, there's some significant opportunities there. What we have to do is make sure that we're getting the maximum benefit for every federal dollar that we invest. I want to note that as we speak, Lake Powell, one of the West's biggest water savings accounts, just reached a new all-time low. Uh, Meanwhile, you have this Senate group trying to hammer out solutions. I'll note the river also supports indigenous tribes, 29 of them. They don't have seats in the U.S. Senate. Do they have a place in your negotiations? No, of course. I mean, I think we're looking at, at trying to look at all parties concerned and make sure that as we try to fashion a compromise that everybody's at the table and and we're all recognizing and taking into consideration all the different interests. In many cases, the tribes have not been able to get access to their water for many, many, many years. They may have the rights to that water, but they haven't been able to get access. So that is something that we've been working on, my gosh, ever since, even while I was governor, but since I've been in the Senate, I guess I'm not hearing necessarily that the tribes have a place at the table in the discussions that you have convened among senators. Uh, well, we've we have not had tribes sitting in in the Senate. No, we don't. We have not done a hearing that usually when you ask for when you want the advice or the counsel of uh, outside experts or you want to make sure you get the perspective of tribes, you convene a hearing. Uh, what we do in the Senate, I mean, my again, I've only been here two years. My understanding is the senators represent everybody in a state, the tribes, the agricultural users, the urban users. I've, you know, as a senator, I've had 
discussions since we began this with the Ute Mountain Utes and the, and the Southern Utes. The Colorado River starts in the mountains here in Colorado. It flows down through Utah, Arizona, to the border with California and into Mexico. And along the way, feeds cities, farms. Uh, some Coloradans, including some state legislators, have suggested that Colorado should just build more reservoirs to hold on <laughs> to more of the water for ourselves. What do you think of that posture? Is it responsible? Is it realistic? Well, I think this is what I referred to a little bit earlier. Many people in the upper basin feel that they've already given more than enough and that they shouldn't have to take additional cuts. I think we've got to take a little more holistic view. Again, I'm not going to negotiate away our water rights. You know, Colorado has been underserved. <laughs> I mean, the water, as you point out, the water uh, originates in Colorado and flows through Colorado. We're, we're a headwater state. There aren't any rivers or, or almost no rivers that flow into Colorado. All the rivers flow out of Colorado. But that being said, the way the law has evolved in the West, people downstream have established rights to that water that originates upstream. And those rights uh, extend across state lines. So Colorado has been involved in a, a variety of lawsuits with Kansas, uh, some of which we lost, and which were, were very expensive for farmers and ranchers on the eastern plains because those water rights to the east of us uh, had been in place longer and took precedence over the rights of, of Coloradans. And so to this specific question of building more reservoirs here, it sounds like you think that's a non-starter given the legal framework. No, I, I, again, I think everything's got to be on the table. I mean, one of the biggest issues we've got, though, is that we're not filling the reservoirs that we have. We're about to start emptying Flaming Gorge Reservoir. Much of the reservoir capacity that we had has been tapped and been used to try and keep up with the overconsumption out of the Colorado River and the under-delivery of water. And looming in the background is the federal government. So the states along the river, seven of them, have been largely responsible for trying to make life in the West more sustainable when it comes to water. But state negotiators have missed two deadlines set by the Biden administration. The White House keeps threatening to take action if they miss the deadlines, but hasn't done anything substantive yet. What's your sense of if, when the feds may actually just impose cuts on Colorado river users? Well, I think what's going to happen is that what they talk about when the level of the lake gets so low that it becomes what is referred to as a power pool, where the level of the lake is too low to continue to generate electricity, then you're talking about hundreds of thousands of citizens that use that electricity. Uh, and I think that's where the federal government's going to say, hey, let push is coming to shove. That the electricity would have to take priority over other uses? Is that what you're saying? Well, I think the electricity is the place where that's a clear point at which suddenly the costs escalate dramatically. So no one in the federal government has told me that that's the breaking point. But I do think when that happens, if that happens, that suddenly the you know, reclamation says arbitrarily, here's how we're going to make the cuts, and those are the cuts. Then you're all, all of a sudden in litigation and you're in lawsuits. You know, all of a sudden it's going to go to the Supreme Court. Who knows how long that takes? I think that fear of litigation really is driving everybody to say, what is a fair agreement? And you never know for sure how a court's going to respond or what the outcome of a case could be. 
and some of the Supreme Court justices, I was told that a, a few of them haven't really ever had to go deep into water law. Have you gamed out what it would mean for your constituents in Colorado in their daily lives if the federal government institutes these cuts? Well, I'm not sure Colorado would be in the greatest danger. Again, as you point out, we're upstream. That being said, if it ends up in court, there could be sacrifices and changes we might have to make. I don't think so. I hope not. I'd fight like crazy against that. But I think we have, just like the other six states in the Colorado River Basin, I think we have a real incentive to be part of a solution rather than to say, hey, I'm not going to give an inch. I'll see you in court. Just very briefly, you've said Colorado is safe. You've said Colorado's done more than its part. If every senator takes that tact in these negotiations, it sounds like nothing moves. Well, if everyone says that they're not going to have a discussion and look at alternatives, then that's where we've been. Nothing does move. But part of what's happened, I think this is an important reason why the bipartisan Senate caucus is involved, is we see each other every day and we are able to pick up the phone, continue a discussion. Governors have a plateful of other things going on every day, and it's hard for them to drop everything and go to a meeting. When The Western Governors Association was very effective, but we only saw each other a couple times a year. Senator, thanks for your time. Sure, anytime. Democratic U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper on the Colorado River crisis, which, by the way, is the subject of a forthcoming podcast from CPR News. Michael Elizabeth Sackis from our climate team will host. More to come. Meanwhile, CPR's Dan Boyce reports on a new poll which finds that Coloradans want more investment in water conservation. You can read his story at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues shortly. We'll head to Denver's historic Larimer Square. A new owner is doing much-needed renovations, but some longtime businesses are out. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio, called Terra Firma, brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. The sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring what that means. The sound of wind in trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver's oldest block is Larimer Square, where I'm standing. Its low-slung western charm makes it a top attraction, a place where you can have a nice dinner, buy a pair of shoes, maybe a hat. Once, it was on the brink of demolition. Now, there are different concerns about the block's new owner and their intentions for the place, which is why I've met Chris Walker here, editor at 5280 Magazine. He's just written a piece called, well, Chris, you, you say the headline. The headline is Losing Larimer, the Uncertain Future of Denver's Most Iconic Block. Iconic, a pretty hefty word there. Why iconic, first off? Say more about what this place means to Colorado. Well, Ryan, as you already mentioned, it is Colorado's oldest commercial block. As the city of Denver was being established, 
Larimer Square, this stretch of Larimer Street between 14th Street and 15th Street housed the first popular businesses. It hosted the first city hall in Denver. It was the first stretch of street that had a streetcar. Uh, so it really is the heart and soul of Denver. And in light of the new owner, you ask, will Larimer Square remain a bastion of local flavor or become a mecca for chains? Uh, there are already some chains here. I'll confess to grabbing a coffee before we talked at Starbucks. There's Capitol Grill, Ted's Montana Grill. So what are you, what are you saying here? Yeah, Ocean Prime, Cotopaxi. There are chains, and Larimer Square has a history of hosting various chains, even under the stewardship of Dana Crawford, who helped preserve Larimer Square. But... Over the last 20 years or so, Larimer Square has developed this reputation for homegrown businesses. And when Denverites think about Larimer Square, these are the businesses that we really gravitate towards. It had a central role in developing Denver's own culinary scene. It's where Troy Gard uh, had a restaurant in Tag. It's where James Beard winning restaurateur Jennifer Jasinski and her partner Beth Gruwich started Rioja, Bistro Vendome. The Bananos have had various restaurants and businesses on the square. So it developed this reputation for entrepreneurship. And that seems to be at risk at the moment. Some local businesses have indeed decided to pack up or it's been a mix of deciding to and feeling forced to. Could you give us an example? Yes, so to back up a little bit for context, Larimer Square has had various owners over the years and a new owner bought the square in December of 2020. They're called Asana Partners. They're a relatively new investment firm. They got started in 2015 and they have been gobbling up properties all over the country in 25 cities and throughout Denver, not just Larimer Square, but they even recently purchased a number of buildings on Platt Street last month for $40 million. Platt Street over by Confluence Park there in the heart of Denver? Correct. Similar to Larimer Square, also these old historic buildings. So one of the things that's happened since Asana has taken over Larimer Square, the best way to phrase it is a lot of miscommunication or lack of communication with their current tenants. That has created friction because these are business owners who make their living through their properties on Larimer Square. They want to know what the future of their buildings is because it affects their livelihood. And answers have not always been forthcoming by the new owners. You mentioned the Bananos, so that's Frank and his wife, Jacqueline. They had a barbecue restaurant and a speakeasy beneath Larimer Square. It's kind of like entering a hobbit's den. And they've moved on. They have moved on. And I think one of the sad things here is there's a number of homegrown businesses that have left the square within the past year who did not intend to do so. This is not what they wanted to do. One of the major factors here is that Larimer Square needs a lot of renovation and repairs. And to Asana's credit, they have started to undergo these renovation efforts. Previous owner of the square claimed that Larimer Square requires $60 million worth of renovation work. And this is going to require some displacement of tenants as these buildings are retrofitted. 
The problem, though, and the Bananos are an example of this, is that Asana came to them and said, hey, we need your spaces to do renovations. And so the Bananos said, well, what can we do to stay on Larimer Square? We really like being here. We've developed a reputation for our businesses. And so they were trying to pitch Asana on starting things in various other locations. The Crimson Room, they mentioned wanting to start a bar on the second floor of one of these buildings. And these negotiations were exercises in futility. In fact, Asana pitched the Bananos on opening a business not in Larimer Square, but in Cap Hill next to four businesses that the Bananos already own there. And it turns out that the Asana representative didn't even know that the Bonanos owned businesses there. So this encapsulates some of the conversations that I'm hearing that tenants are having with Asana partners. Now, this trouble communicating extends to you. You asked Asana to speak with you and they declined. We have gotten a leak, a glimpse at their potential vision for Larimer Square. How do we know what they might be intending for Denver's oldest block? Leak is the correct word. I was leaked a plan that they put online briefly showing their new merchandising plan, so future tenants on Larimer Square. What shocked some current owners, including one of the oldest businesses on the block, Victoriana Fine and Antique Jewelry, their spot was listed as available And the only new tenants on the square were chain businesses uh, that were all headquartered out of state. We'll see if this actually comes to pass, but that included a clothing store called Heyday, a fast casual restaurant called Sweet Green, um, a beauty parlor called Dry Bar. And the concern about chains taking over was actually voiced by some of these tenants I talked to. Um, Again, chains can be useful. There are names we recognize. They draw traffic to an area. But I think when we conceptualize and think of Larimer Square, we think of these homegrown Denver businesses. And it's a bit jarring to see a new merchandising plan where the only new additions are chain businesses from out of state. I think Larimer Square can be deceptive. It looks crisp. It looks well-kempt. It looks maintained. Uh, But indeed, as you've mentioned, it needs a lot of investment. I mean, these are old buildings, and old buildings, even in their best shape, require a lot of TLC. And I suppose this is a question you'd like to ask them, but um, the benefit here could be a sprucing up of Larimer Square, an extension of its life. Yes. I mean, Asana, to their credit, did send me a statement, but this was after requesting an interview and also sending a long list of questions to them. They sent the same statement to the Denver Post, too, so even the statement they sent wasn't unique to my article. I would like to hear their plans. You know, are they planning on working with local entrepreneurs and starting businesses here? Um, What do they make of these concerns about seemingly not honoring the legacy of these businesses that have been here for many decades. Um, And we've seen under Asana's stewardship, Gusterman Silversmiths, which was the oldest business on the block, leaving because there was beef between Gustermans and Asana. And I haven't seen any statement from Asana to the effect of what they think of the fact that these businesses have left. 
You know, I think one thing that's unsettling about Larimer Square these days is how many empty storefronts there are. Now, I suppose that could be a function of the renovations underway. What do we know? It could be a function of the renovations, but one source I talked to brought up the potential of so-called high-rent blight, where a landlord will let a unit set, sit vacant because they can't find anyone to meet their rental demands. And it's relevant because multiple folks that I spoke with did mention that in lease negotiations, Asana was asking for rents, which were as much as double what tenants had paid before. I mean, Asana spent $92.5 million to buy this piece of property, and it's investing more to do these renovations. So I'm sure they want return on their investment, but it is unsettling if it is indeed related to high rent blight. I mean, that alone can drive more businesses away. One store owner I talked to, a jeweler named John Atencio, who has a number of shops around Colorado, he left not only because he was asked to move his store, his storefront to another location in Larimer Square for renovations, but he said, hey, I was looking around at all of these businesses leaving the square and these other jewelers leaving the square, and I didn't feel safe anymore. Um, so, yeah, there's also fear of a potential snowball effect here. Now, during the pandemic, I think that's the timing of it. Larimer Square was cordoned off to automobile traffic, and it's a pedestrian block now. Is that Asana's decision? Is that a question you asked them? Yet another they wouldn't answer? So the street was blocked off during the pandemic before Asana bought Larimer Square. And I did get some answers from the downtown Denver partnership that it does seem like there will be a permanent closure. So perhaps we can get rid of the orange traffic signs which make either side of Larimer Square look like a public works project. <laughs> yeah, it's not the most attractive way to cordon off a beautiful block. Do you know if this is making it into conversations around the mayor's race or the city council races? It's a great question, Ryan. I mean, it's hard to keep track of what, what is it, 17 people are saying? <laughs> I have not seen anyone mention Larimer Square specifically. What I have seen candidates talk about is their plans for revitalizing downtown. And I think it's fair to note that some of the struggles of Larimer Square are related to broader issues downtown. And so you do see candidates talk about addressing homelessness, um, these at least perceptions that people have about lack of safety downtown as well as trying to drive more traffic downtown. You know, you've heard candidates talk about converting office spaces to apartments. All of that, I think, would help Larimer Square. That is Chris Walker, associate editor at 5280. We talked about his article, Losing Larimer, the Uncertain Future of Denver's Most Iconic Block. I'll put a link to that article in today's podcast at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. He died in ICE custody, and now the autopsy is out for Melvin Ariel Calero Mendoza. The 39-year-old Nicaraguan man collapsed last fall in the kitchen area of the detention center in Aurora. He later died in the hospital. 
CPR's Matt Bloom has reviewed the autopsy and spoken with medical experts and advocates about a larger pattern of preventable deaths at ICE facilities, the need for oversight. Hi, Matt. Hi, Ryan. Tell us who Calero Mendoza was, how he ended up in ICE custody. As you said, 39 from Nicaragua. We don't know the exact route he took yet, but he left his country and arrived in the U.S. sometime in April last year. Family members say he was trying to claim asylum. He crossed the border and was detained by U.S. Border Patrol. ICE eventually transferred him to their detention center in Aurora, Mm -hmm. run by the private company Geo Group, where he was awaiting deportation proceedings. The autopsy, which CPR News obtained through a public records request, says he died of a pulmonary embolism while in the Aurora facility. What more can you tell us? Well, that's when one or more blood clots uh, block the flow of blood to your lungs. But the important finding here is that the autopsy says it was likely connected to an injury on his right leg. He hurt himself while he was playing soccer in the facility's rec yard last summer. Now, that injury slowly got worse over time. His foot swelled and the swelling spread to his leg. That all wasn't treated appropriately. According to doctors, swelling like that is a sign to seek immediate medical help. It could be a sign of a serious infection or, as we saw here, blood clots. And his family, their lawyers and several medical experts we've spoken with say that points to potential medical neglect inside the facility. What do we know about the medical treatment he got, if any? We know he had a few visits to the center's medical unit complaining about pain Nurses gave him basic over-the-counter meds like ibuprofen and acetaminophen and told him to ice his foot and come back if he needed more help. But other than that, we don't really know the details of his medical visits. What did his leg look like and why didn't he get more medical attention sooner? Uh, There are also a couple inconsistencies between the autopsy and earlier ICE reports. Oh, uh, what are those? It's mainly the dates that he sought care. For example, the autopsy says Calero Mendoza injured his foot on or around September 4th, but an earlier report from ICE says it happened 25 days earlier. So even just the start date of his health problems is unclear. Mm -hmm. And there are also differences in the language used to describe what happened to him. One report says he collapsed in the common kitchen area. Another doesn't specify where he collapsed. Even simple things like whether he was playing soccer or American football when he got injured. ICE's earlier reports say he injured his foot playing soccer, but the autopsy says he was playing football, like F-O-O-T, American football. I can imagine that sort of imprecision being unsettling when you're talking about a loved one's death. Right, but medical experts who study ICE deaths and detention say that when, when taken together, the vague language... The inconsistent dates, these are all a sign of bad record keeping and inadequate care in the system. I spoke with uh, Parveen Parmar, Dr. Parveen Parmar. She's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Southern California. There are many, many cases where people have a diagnosis that could have been caught earlier uh, that then progresses to kind of a fatal state because they're not given access to appropriate medical care. So fairly common in the system. Mm. Parmar says that's a lot uh, that a lot of times the staff doing evaluations are nurses not a clinician and, and, and in the case of Calera Mendoza you know that could have been recognized that his leg was swelling it was something more serious 
the blood clots could have been spotted before they became life-threatening. Matt, what is the family's reaction to the autopsy and the handling of the case so far? Their stance was that this was entirely preventable and that there needs to be some kind of accountability here. Melvin's sister, Adelina, who lives in the U.S., shared a written statement with us through her lawyers. And her main question now is basically, how could staff at the Aurora facility miss these signs of blood clots? Hmm. There hasn't been any legal action taken quite yet, but she and her lawyers are working on gathering more evidence, while at the same time there's still a federal investigation underway. Ah, what's the status of that? What's next there? Colorado's congressional delegation requested this independent review of Calero Mendoza's death, which is expected to wrap up in the spring sometime. That's being led by ICE's Office of Professional Responsibility. It's unclear what exactly that could turn up, but lawmakers have already said that Calero Mendoza's case is an example of why these government-contracted private detention centers need to have better medical care and greater oversight, especially when they're taxpayer-funded, they're processing thousands of migrants each year in our communities. This is the third death at the Aurora facility since 2012, and it has refreshed a lot of similar calls for more oversight that we've heard after similar deaths in recent years. Matt, thanks for telling us about this particular case and putting it into some context. We'll look forward to more from you on it. Thank you. CPR reporter Matt Bloom with the latest on the case of Melvin Ariel Calero Mendoza. The 39-year-old Nicaraguan man was in ICE custody in Aurora last fall when he died. And we'll be right back. In Colorado's subalpine areas, you might spot a greenish-gray toad hanging out in shallow waters, sporting a white stripe on its back. Each boreal toad is further distinguished by its own belly pattern, as unique as a fingerprint. You won't hear the boreal toad croak, as it doesn't have the vocal organ to make that sound, but you might hear this delicate chirp. Instead of drinking, the toad absorbs water through a patch on its skin, and that can be infected by a fungus that's depleting amphibian populations worldwide. The boreal toad was once common in the southern Rocky Mountains, but has declined drastically over the past few decades. A hundred toads are now in the Denver Zoo's care in a conservation effort to restore the animal in the southern Rockies. With thanks to biologist Danita Weeks, this is a Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble and Company. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. New Mexico may choose an official state aroma. A bill inspired by fifth graders would make it, quote, the aroma of green chili roasting in the fall, which got us thinking, what would Colorado's be? Now, we've sniffed around and we're not aware of any such campaign here. Still, you had plenty of ideas. And let's just skip past marijuana and the waft of Greeley before a storm. Those are de rigueur. Paige Sheridan Becker suggests the smell of a Red Rocks concert, the combination of dirt, weed, smoke, and sweat. On Twitter, Bordessa1 thinks it should be the scent of a new Subaru. Several folks suggested pine trees, an aspen forest in the fall, says David De La Garza. Continuing the New Mexico-Colorado chili war, Jen Lillis writes, Does it matter? Nothing beats roasting chilies. Ryan Grange writes the pungent sulfuric scent at the Glenwood Springs pool. 
Andy Bosselman, who, for transparency's sake, is a friend of mine, thinks it should be a fleece jacket covered in dog hair. Tammy Matthews Huffnagel had a few ideas, including hiker sweat and tattered cover books. A vote from the High Plains for my favorite smell, says Susan Kreitz, blooming alfalfa. You all proposed campfire smoke and sugar beet processing and the Purina pet food plant as well. Petricor came up too, the smell of the earth after it rains. On Mastodon, Rose Alibi notes her mom's office used to be across from the Jolly Rancher factory in Wheat Ridge. Quote, watermelon days were just the best. Mile High Architect suggests the peppermint room at Celestial Seasonings. And to cap things off, Elliot Landrum writes, at the end of one thread, I can almost smell all these replies. The story now of a balloon you don't need to worry about, certainly not one to shoot down. In Grand Junction, weather balloons go up unaffected by the global helium shortage because these are hydrogen. I was in Junction last fall to witness the launch, part of a twice-daily global event. The balloons go up worldwide at the same time. Oh, it's an orchestration, a choreography. Yeah, midnight and noon, Greenwich Mean Time. We've come to the Grand Junction Airport to meet Dan Cuevas of the National Weather Service, who will inflate the balloon, attach a monitor to it called a radio sonde, and do the launch. Let me grab a balloon. We're going out these doors. Wait, you're grabbing a balloon because they are disposable? They're, they, yeah. you don't, it's, oh. It's all disposable. Where is this thing going to end up? Could end up well on the Mesa, could end up in Rifle. We had one end up in a golf course in Colorado Springs. And then do people retrieve them for you or? The old instruments that we had, had plastic postage paid pre-addressed envelopes. Uh-huh. So if a person would find one, they would put it in the envelope, drop it in the mailbox, it would go back to Kansas City. If they could recondition it to the point where it would operate, they would Launch mix it, it up yeah, and send it back out into the field. We don't do that with the new radio sons. They're just disposable. And they might be anywhere. And if I found one, I could keep it. Yeah. All right. I'm they're, gonna har- have my... they're harmless. There's nothing dangerous about them. Now, you are filling this balloon up, yes. not with helium. Right. Hydrogen. Hydrogen. Flammable. Highly you got to be careful. Correct. You have attached the balloon as you might a birthday balloon. Yeah, we attach it to the nozzle here, and then we'll turn the hydrogen flow on. We have stowed our cell phones away so that there's not any spark hazard. And, oh, here, the hydrogen inflation safety system. Yeah, hiss for short. Hiss. (laughs) So we reset the software and we put it in standby. That turns on two exhaust fans up in the corners. Oh, that's going to exhaust any excess gas. Yeah. Okay. Here we have our parachute. And every balloon that goes up has to have a parachute on it so that when the balloon bursts, the instrument will fall gently to the ground. Gently to the ground. Have there ever been collisions with things? 
Not that I have heard. Okay. But we're told that we have to have a parachute with every flight, so. And that's how the balloon meets its demise? It bursts? It'll burst. It'll be finished inflating just a little bit bigger than what it is now. But as it goes up, because it's encountering less pressure, less air pressure, it's going to expand. And before it bursts, I'm told it will be as big as this room. Oh my goodness, it's the size of a very large garage before it bursts. Correct. And it gets so big and stretches so far, and it's so cold, it gets, the material gets brittle, eventually to the point where it just can't stretch anymore, and then it'll burst. Cold because it's going that high up. How high will this balloon go? It'll go 20 miles. 20 miles up? Correct. It'll go about two hours. It goes up about 1,000 feet a minute, and it'll, it'll go up as long as 120 minutes before it bursts. Do you ever wish you were up with it, Dan? It's very cold up there. <laughs> 60 degrees below zero. What is this measuring exactly? <laughs> the sound is measuring temperature, humidity, or the moisture content of the air, pressure, and wind speed, wind direction. How much of the forecasts that I rely on every day is based on the information that this balloon and radio sonde are helping gather. Across the continental United States, there's probably maybe 80 to 100 stations that put up balloons twice a day. The data that we get from the balloons all ends up, I believe, in Silver Spring, Maryland, ah. where some of the fastest computers in the world are located. And that centralize and synthesize all this. Correct. That data is the backbone to the beginning of the forecasting process. Ooh, did it just finish? Yeah. It's a bit Willy Wonka looking, isn't it, Dan? Willy Wonka, yeah, yeah. We filled the balloon to lift between one and a half and two pounds. Well, the radio sound is not terribly heavy. No, the radio sound basically is styrofoam and a few circuit boards and wiring. How many of these do you think you've done, these launches? Too many to count? I'd have to, really, I'd have to stop and think about it. Yeah, that's, that's some high math, okay. A lot. Every time I come to work, I do one. And you've been here since 90-something, right? 89. 89. And the balloon is too big to bring out of the door that we walked in, so you've got to use this garage door. I'm going to give the tower a call to get clearance to put the balloon in the air. Yeah, tower. Weather service would like to launch a balloon. Alrighty, thank you. Does the tower ever tell you you can't launch? They've always, for the most part, it's almost like a reflex. They tell you, sure, go ahead. I was having trouble with one afternoon flight. I got, had a bad radio sound. I had to turn it in and get another one, and it was taking up some time. So before I got to the point where I was ready to call the tower, they called me and said, don't release the balloon. Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, was doing campaigning for his second term. He was in town and Air Force One was ready to take off. And they didn't want to have to shoot down any weather balloons. <laughs> uh, you deferred to the president in correct, that case. Correct. And when the coast was clear, the tower called me back and said, okay, you can release it. And I was still within the, the acceptable window. So it got off, I got the data, and it was all good. And it smells like the rubber of a balloon, you know? Yeah, it really isn't much different than that. 
Okay. We'll just carry it out and release it. And there she goes. Thousand feet a minute. In no time, the weather balloon is a mere speck in the sky. Dan Cuevas and I retreat to his office, where there's a computer taking in all the real-time data. And I have one more question before we part ways. Dan, were you always a weather nerd? I grew up fearing a lot of the weather that occurred in eastern Kansas. Fearing it? Afraid of thunderstorms and and lightning. Uh, We had a weeping willow in our backyard that would wave back and forth with not much wind blowing. And my parents tell me that I would run inside afraid that a tornado was coming. I mean, that was a real possibility. It was. Most of the time, it wasn't the case. Uh-huh. But I, in being afraid of it, I, I wanted to learn more about it. So I started you know, checking out books from the library and buying books at bookstores. And it became an interest. A fear became an interest. A fear became a profession. Correct. Thank you so much for letting us watch this. Sure, yeah. Weather balloon launch expert Dan Cuevas. His official title with the National Weather Service in Grand Junction is hydrometeorological technician. We met back in September. Finally today, new music from jazz guitarist and composer Bill Frizzell. Frizzell wrote most of the material for his latest album, Four, during quarantine. The record is dedicated to his friend and fellow Denver East High School grad, the late cornetist Ron Miles. In fact, many of the tracks serve as requiems for those who've died in recent years. Claude Utley was written for the late Seattle painter. Waltz for Hal Wilner is about the famous producer and collaborator who died of COVID in 2020. is the new album from Colorado-based jazz guitarist Bill Frizzell. That's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.